morning is found in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28, and the last two verses, verses 19 and 20, where the Lord Jesus says to his disciples, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always even unto the end of the world. Amen. Now, over the last number of weeks, we've been working our way through the subject of worshipping the Lord, how we're to do that in spirit and in truth. And we have learned every week, at one point or another, that the whole point of worship is not to make people feel good about themselves, but to please the Lord. And so we don't worship in a way or in response to what people want or what they might like. Our desire is to do what the Lord would have us to do. And in response to what he has declared to us in the scripture. And so what the Bible declares and commands, we want to be able to follow. And so having set the subject, we have then sought to um, divide out the various aspects of our worship, Uh, indeed the worship that's been practiced by biblical churches down through the years, and we've seen that that includes the public reading of God's word, the preaching, the expository preaching of that word, public prayer, the singing of praises, and now this morning we want to examine the fifth element, and that is the administering of the sacraments, or the ordinances, if you prefer, of baptism and the Lord's Supper. So we want to delve into that subject a little this morning and see how we worship the Lord through these various elements. So we want to start firstly with the matter of baptism. And I simply want to ask a number of questions and seek to answer them from the Word of God. I think that's probably the best way to do that. So, to ask firstly the question, why do we baptize? Well, as we've seen already in Matthew chapter 28 and the verses 18 through to 20, we baptize firstly because we've been commanded to baptize The Lord Jesus, before his ascension, has gathered his disciples together. He sends them on what we refer to as the Great Commission, to bring his truth into all the world. And he reminds them that all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye, therefore, and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. And as I've said, we refer to this particular passage as the Great Commission. Following his resurrection and just before his ascension, the Lord Jesus commissions his disciples to bring the good news of the gospel into all the world. And you notice, firstly, the first thing we are to do, verse 19, we are to go. We are to get out there and go elsewhere. And as we go, we are to bring those glad tidings. We are not to sit idly by and wait and see what the Lord might do. We are to go. 
We're to go to our families and tell them. We're to go to our neighbours and tell them. We're to go to our co-workers and others throughout the community. And if called upon to go throughout the world, preaching and telling the gospel, we are to go. And as we go, we go and teach all nations. We're to go and teach them. Literally, the expression there is to make disciples of all nations. And a disciple is simply a learner, one who has committed himself to a teacher. And we are disciples of Christ because he, of course, is the great teacher. We believe in him, we trust him, we follow him, we learn from him, and we are to go and to make disciples and teach all nations to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, to follow after him. So we are to make disciples of all nations. So we're not bound geographically. We're not to remain simply in our little parish and to not seek to extend our borders. Really the world is our field. And we are to go into all the world and to preach the gospel to all nations. That's what we're told. Go and teach all nations. The word nations, there is the Greek word ethnos. We get our English word ethnicity from it. We go and teach all ethnicities. There's no restrictions as to where the word of God can or cannot go. And wonderfully we find in the book of Revelation, and perhaps my favourite portion of that book, chapter 7, there in verse 9 we're told of that great assembly of saints, the redeemed of the Lord that are surrounding his throne and they're made up of every nation and kindred and people and tongue. Go and teach. Notice what we're to do thirdly. Baptize. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. We go and seek them out. We teach them the gospel of Christ and upon their con. Version, we're told they're to be baptized also. So there's baptism. Now, baptism isn't always a, a popular topic in, in churches today. Uh, there are a great many people who profess to be Christians and to be followers of Christ who have never been baptized. And yet that would seem to go against what the Savior himself has said here in Matthew 28. In fact, when you turn over a few pages and get to the Acts of the Apostles in chapter 2, we have uh, one of the first great evangelistic crusades that are taking place. It's the Jewish Feast of Pentecost, and multiple people have come to the city of Jerusalem for the feast, people from all over Israel, People from nations round about, people that have travelled great distances, and there at the Feast of Pentecost, Peter and the rest of this, the disciples are empowered by the Spirit of God. He comes upon them and they begin to speak to the people in languages that the disciples haven't learned, but everyone can understand. And as they preach, souls are converted. Now in Acts chapter 2 and verse 37 as Peter has preached to them Christ crucified, at the end of his message, this is what is said. And when they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? 
Then Peter said unto them, Repent, and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And as you read on down the chapter, we find that then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. So you can see very clearly that the, that the fledgling church in Acts chapter 2 certainly took the words of the Lord Jesus Christ very much to heart. Go into all the, the world, teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. So, why do we baptize? Well, because we've been instructed by the Savior to baptize. Now, what is baptism? Well, our English word baptism is what we refer to as a transliteration. We take the original letters of the Greek word baptizo and we simply substitute the Greek letters with English letters and we get the word baptism. What does it mean? Well, it has a variety of meanings in the original. It can mean to dip, or to wash, or to sprinkle. And there's a wide variety of terms. Now, some will argue that baptism can only be by immersion. But that's not how the word is always used. And we have to be careful. And if you want references for that, you can find it in Hebrews 9 and verse 10, and verse 13 and 19 and 21 throughout that chapter of Hebrews 9. Uh, perhaps one that will help are in Luke chapter 11 and verse 38. We read there that when the Pharisees saw it, that is the, the Saviour and the disciples sitting down to eat with unwashed hands, they marveled that they had not first washed before dinner. The word there, washed, is baptizo. The English word baptism. Now obviously we're not thinking that they didn't fully submerge before dinner, but why didn't they wash their hands, even just apart? So baptism simply means a variety of things. To wash, to dip, to sprinkle. So there's an element of water involved at least. But we'll all satisfy ourselves with that. But what is its significance? And I think this is more important than the mode of baptism. What's its significance? Well, baptism really is a symbol of salvation. It's not the substance of salvation, it's a symbol of it. And I say not the, not the substance of salvation because there is, of course, that doctrine that we refer to as baptismal regeneration. That's what's practiced by the Roman Catholic Church where baptism actually bestows grace and salvation as the water is poured upon uh, the infant. We don't believe that. That's certainly not what the scripture teaches. Baptism, we believe, is an outward picture of an inward work of God transforming a sinner into a saint. It's, a, it's an illustration. And in that illustration, it's a picture of the death of the old life of sin and the washing away of those sins. It's a, it's a picture of those things. It doesn't actually do anything Baptism doesn't take away our sins, but it is to be a representation of what has already happened uh, through the grace of God. Paul says in Galatians 2 and 20, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me 
and gave himself for me. So in baptism we are symbolizing that union that we have with Jesus Christ. Our water baptism symbolizes the spiritual baptism that we experience through salvation. And so when we read in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 13 that by one spirit we are all baptized into one body. Whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free and have been made all to drink into one spirit. So our baptism really is that symbolizing of our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. We have been brought into fellowship with him. It's saying to the world around us that I belong to Jesus Christ and he belongs to me. And so through baptism, we signal our identity with him in his humiliation. The going into the water, the exaltation. So we symbolize him in his death, his resurrection, and in his ascension. So for those that are baptized after their conversion, their baptism is in recognition of their union to the Lord Jesus Christ in saving faith. For those that have been baptized as infants, their baptism is in anticipation of that union with Jesus Christ. So one's in recognition of it, one is in anticipation of it. And for both Baptism is simply that outward sign of belonging to that community of faith, the covenant people of the Lord, and we recognize that we belong to him. And as throughout all the scriptures, uh, we recognize that children were very much a part of the Old Testament covenant people, and we expect no less in the New Testament times also. Now let me read a statement from our denomination on the subject of baptism. The Free Presbyterian Church of Ulster, of which we of course are a part, under Christ, the great King and Head of the Church, realising the bitter controversy raging around the mode, uh, that's whether it's sprinkling or immersion or pouring or whatever it might be, and the subjects, does it belong simply to those who profess faith, or does it belong to, to uh, the families and to the children as well? Recognizing that the bitter controversy raging around the mode and the proper subjects of the ordinance of Christian baptism, how it has divided the body of Christ when that body should have been united in Christian love, we hereby affirm that each member of the Free Presbyterian Church shall have liberty to decide for themselves which course to adopt on these controverted issues, each member giving due honour in love to the views held by differing brethren, but none espousing the error of baptismal regeneration. And that's what we practice within this denomination, that we have liberty as believers either to hold and to practice what we call credo baptism, those who are baptised as a result of their profession of faith, and pedo-baptism, those who seek to include their children in those outward forms of the religion and to tie them to Christ. Now, of course, not espousing the error of baptismal regeneration, that 
somehow baptism itself is what saves. That's not what we believe. So why do we baptize? Because Christ has told us. What is baptism? It's an outward sign of belonging to the Lord. How does it relate to worship? Well, I think as far as part of as the ministry is concerned, two of my most favorite parts are weddings and baptisms. And they're very similar in, in many respects. At weddings, a couple will stand before the congregation and then they will make their vows to one another in the sight of God. And as they do so, it's, it always thrills my heart. The weddings are a joyous occasion. And so are baptisms. At the wedding, the couple's commitment is made to one another. At baptism, it's a commitment that's made unto the Lord. And when we find a couple that are willing to and decide to get married, they've already made a commitment to one another. And they're making that a public statement before the congregation. It's a public consecration of that commitment that they've already decided upon. Now, when a believer is baptized, he too has already made a commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's been saved by his grace, and their baptism then is that public consecration, that public celebration of their union to the Lord. When a little one is baptized, it's in recognition of their place within what we refer to as the covenant community. It's an anticipation of their coming to Christ and professing faith in him. Now, we tend to think of baptism as being a sign of our commitment to Christ. But in reality, it's not our sign, but his. It's Christ that gives us this sign. It's he who commands us to be baptized. And we baptize in his name, as well as in the name of the Father and in the Holy Spirit. Now, here's what one old writer said. He said, certainly in, bapti- in baptism, we emphasize our commitment to Christ. But in reality, we also emphasize his commitment to us and to our children. Our baptism is an outward confirmation, yes, for us. But really, it's a confirmation of what the Lord has said and has promised to us. Psalm 103 in verse 17 says. But the mercy of the Lord. Is from everlasting to everlasting. Upon them that fear him. And his righteousness unto children's children. And you'll find all throughout the scriptures. That the Lord's promises are not only to us as individuals. But to our children and our children's children also. So let me say this, that if you are a believing adult and you've never been baptized, then this is a very clear command from the Lord about something that you should follow through on and seek to have done as soon as possible. If you were baptized as an infant, then I call upon you to make that public confession of Christ and to make your calling and your election sure And to seek to live up to that baptism that you have been. And that has already been carried out in your name. So there's two very clear commands here. Those that 
are saved but are not baptized, it's time you were. For those of you that have been baptized but have yet to make that public confession of faith, it's time to make that calling and election sure. Remember how we described worship as a two-way conversation between the Lord and his people. God speaks to us in the reading of his word and we speak back to him in our prayer. God speaks to us through the preaching of his word and we speak back to him in the singing of our praises. Well, in baptism we are speaking of our commitment to Christ and also in baptism we have his commitment to us as his people. Or as Paul told the Corinthians, we are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. So when we baptize, we celebrate God's covenant relationship with his people. And as I said, they are joyous occasions, just as weddings. And we should praise God for his commitment to us. And his association with us and his desire that we might be with him throughout eternity. So we worship the Lord through our baptism. Now we have the second of the two ordinances or the sacraments. That of the Lord's Supper. And we call this again one of the ordinances of the church. Now when we say an ordinance... We simply refer to something that has been ordained by God. So the Lord has ordained or commanded us that the church should baptize and that we should celebrate his supper. When we come to the Lord's Supper, there are very obvious parallels to be drawn between what we refer to as the Lord's table and elements of the Jewish Passover. Let me refresh your memory. Back in the book of Exodus, the children of Israel are found in slavery in the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh has refused to let them go and worship the Lord. And so in chapter 12, we find that the Lord has ordained a Passover meal. Each Hebrew family was to take a spotless lamb and keep it in their home for a number of days. And then at the appointed hour... They were to take that little lamb that no doubt the children had fallen for and had great love and compassion for. And they were to take and to sacrifice that animal. The blood that was shed was to be be painted on the doorposts and the lintels of the houses. And then when the death angel passed throughout Egypt, killing the firstborn of every household, he would pass over each house upon which the blood had been applied. And every year after that, each family in Israel would take a sacrificial lamb and eat a Passover meal in remembrance of the Lord's great deliverance of them. And this continued on for some 1,500 years or so. And so millions of children learned the story of how God delivered them and millions of lambs were sacrificed in the process. Then one day, John the Baptist was baptizing in the River Jordan and he looked up and he pointed out to those that were nearby him saying, Behold, the Lamb of God 
which taketh away the sin of the world. You see, all of those millions of Passover lambs that had been sacrificed over that huge period of time, they all pictured or typified foreshadowing the ultimate Lamb of God who would one day come and actually take away the sins of the world. That Lamb of God was none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, in Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8, we find our Savior referred to as the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. He's God's ultimate plan of redemption and has been from eternity past. After John's great statement over the next three years, our Savior would give evidence of his identity as the Son of God and the Lamb of God through the life that he would live in perfect righteousness, through his authoritative teaching, through the supernatural signs of his miracles, everything pointed to him being exactly who John the Baptist said he was. Upon his entry into Jerusalem, in that day that we referred to as uh, his triumphal entry into that great city, that coincided with the herds of the sacrificial lambs being shepherded into the city in anticipation of the Passover. His crucifixion would coincide with the slaughter of the Passover celebration. In fact, in Matthew chapter 26, we read how the Savior instructed his disciples to go and prepare the Passover meal. And as the Savior gathered his 12 disciples, his his earthly family, if you like, he told them the distressing news that one of them would betray him to his enemies. And while they're greatly disturbed at this news, the Lord Jesus in their midst took the unleavened bread and we're told that he blessed it and broke it and gave it to them and said, take, eat, this is my body. And then he took the cup the cup of blessing, and he gave thanks and gave it to them and said, Drink ye all of it. Referring to them all, they're all to drink. For he said, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. The Lord Jesus would completely fulfill the types and symbols of the Passover, and these would pass into this ordinance, this institution of the Lord's Supper. For the Jewish people of the Old Testament times, the Passover pointed forward to that future day when the Lamb of God would take away the sins of the world. The Lord's Supper for us as Christians points backwards to our Savior's death upon Calvary where he actually took away the sins of his people. And so the Passover was a perpetual reminder to the children of Israel of their deliverance from slavery. And the Lord's Supper is our perpetual reminder of our Savior's sacrifice to deliver us from the slavery to sin. And to rescue us from that awful destruction. Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5 and 21. For he that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Or has been made sin, he who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 
Our Saviour, who was absolutely innocent of any sin, who was the spotless Lamb of God, took our sins upon himself. He would bear the wrath of God for our guilt, that he might clothe us in his righteousness. And the point of the Lord's Supper is not merely a religious celebration, but a representation of that awful sacrifice that our Savior made of himself upon the cross on our behalf. We read these words each time we remember the Lord's death in that appointed way. From 1 Corinthians 11 we read, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. And after the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Paul says that he received this teaching from the Lord. And that he faithfully delivered it to us. And just in the same way that our Savior broke the bread, we are to take the bread in remembrance of that sinless body sacrificed for us. We are to obey his command to do this in remembrance of me. And as our Savior took the cup, shared it with the disciples, the cup that speaks of the New Testament, the new covenant in his blood, so we are to drink it. And to fulfill his command to to do this and to drink it in remembrance of me. Verse 26 in that passage conveys the words that we want to give special attention to. It explains to us how the Lord's Supper is that special element of our worship. It tells us, for as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show or show forth the Lord's death till he come. So often as you do it, whether it's every week, every month, or indeed every quarter, so often as you do it, it's a symbol, a picture of what the Lord has done for us. We're to eat the bread and drink the cup. And in so doing, we are proclaiming and remembering and reverencing the Lord's death. We are personally remembering the sacrifice made for us. And so if baptism pictures the joyous resurrection, then the Lord's table recalls his awful death. And we're to do these things till he comes. And in the providence of God, we will continue to meet around the table and remember his death. And we will continue to baptize And remember our death in Christ and our resurrection in him. And we'll continue to do these things until he comes. Until we are able to dispense with the signs and the pictures and to see the reality before us. So as we continue in these acts ordained by the Lord, may we continue to rejoice 
in the sacrifice made for us as we remember the Lord at the table of remembrance and to rejoice in our baptism that the Lord has delivered us from our sins and has brought us into union with himself. And so may we continue to read the word and preach the word and pray the word and sing the word and picture the word of the death and the resurrection and the ascension and the coming again of Christ that we do these things in commandment to his word until he comes again. And may we continue to worship the Lord even in the ordinances or the sacraments of the church of baptism and the Lord's table. May the Lord help us to do these things for the glory of his name. Now we're going to bow in prayer and then after the prayer we're going to have a very special part of our service this morning. We're going to have a dedication service for young Samuel and we'll hold our final hymn then until after that is complete. But we'll bow in prayer at this time. Our Father and our God and our Saviour's worthy and precious name we thank and praise thee for all that thou hast done for us in sending the Lord Jesus to be our Saviour that he would take upon himself our sins and with those sins the judgment of God so that we might be set free. We thank thee for the remembrance of our Saviour's death. That in that death that we have peace with God through him who loved us and gave himself for us. We thank thee for those visible and outward signs of our belonging unto Christ, of our union with him. We pray that each and every child of God might continue to rejoice and to praise thee for thy great faithfulness and for thy continued love toward us. We ask that thou would continue to meet with us as we wait on before thee and that thy presence might be known to us and in the fullness of thy joy that we would continue to profess the name of the Lord Jesus Christ going into all the world and teaching all nations. And may we see many brought Deceiving faith in the Lamb of God and making that public and visible commitment unto him. These things we ask and pray in our Saviour's precious name. Amen. <laughs>